It's time to show the secret films that clips the stars, that clips the stars, hope we never see. The shows that failed, derailed, and never made it to our screens. We bring you the pilots that crashed. During our summer breaks, we try to seek out shows that are worth talking about, whether they be patently notorious flops infamous behind-the-scenes info that would propel a show's infamy, or, in the case of today's subject, a TV pilot that simply didn't move forward for whatever reason. And while I was being carted away to the boss's office by Con Wayne, I had just enough Wi-Fi power to look up a couple of TV specials that are available on YouTube, both of them showing brief clips of these TV pilots that either never saw the light of day or, more than likely, aired during the summer burn-off season when networks needed to patch a temporary hole in their schedules. And I want to give a shout-out to author and TV producer Lee Goldberg for putting these books and supplementary clip shows together back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Because it's through watching these low-light highlight reels that harken the old expression, sometimes you find your path and sometimes it finds you. And since there are a couple dozen of these pilots to sift through, as well as the possibility that they might not all be in full on YouTube, I'm just going to go ahead and pick one at random. Say... this one. Is the slime infesting our streets expecting me? And I'll be on you like a buzzard on a meatloaf. You tell me where you have that money or you'll be doing sit-ups with the devil. Still not laughing? And now, known to cause insanity in lab mice. This is Telehell. Before we can talk about this show, we need to talk about those who put the show together in the first place, starting with a pair of writers named Larry Strother and Gary Murphy. Both men would find their own paths to becoming successful TV writers throughout the 70s and 80s, Murphy getting his big break doing monologue jokes for Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, and Strother working briefly on the game show circuit for the short-lived 1979 revival of Jeopardy. And I'm sure both of them did a number of other things that IMDB is failing to report because I don't want to fall in that trap again. Ultimately, the two writers would find their biggest success to date as a writing duo when they joined the staff of both Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley in their final years on the air, which was enough of a calling card for both men to get themselves onto the writing staffs of more shows throughout the rest of the 80s. So much so that by the late 80s, the duo found themselves in the catbird seat of another established hit. I won't belabor the point here, but as long as there's a revival of it back in production, let's pay a little lip service to the original Night Court, one of many sitcoms that ever existed that could easily fit the description of human cartoon thanks to the seemingly endless parade of nut jobs that would inhabit the courtroom on a weekly basis. And I'm not just talking about the litigants. I mean a cast that's built for comedy and, unfortunately, have suffered one too many losses in recent years. But good dark lord, if ever there was a TV show that can pick me up whenever I'm feeling my lowest, Night Court is in my own personal top ten. If not for the nuts, then especially for this one scene alone that proves just how much of a powerhouse John Larroquette is, was, and could still be today. Hold on. 
Clause 1, the other side declaring complaint states without prejudice to these informed beliefs upon such information declares beliefs that upon 11-1986 and above the judicial district of New York State, New York's crime of violation 23152 of the New York Vehicle Code misdemeanor defendant did willfully and unlawfully while any influence of alcohol and beverage to drive, drive a vehicle. <gasps> Count 2. <laughs> Further, the separate complaint being different cause the same request to the connection with the commissioner they set forth the count declared complaint to send forth the information beliefs that the information and belief that in state that in the state in the judicial city of New York the state of New York in violation 23152 of the Vehicle Code of misdemeanor was committed defendant did willfully and unlawfully while 1.0% or more weight of alcohol did drive a vehicle. The end. My God, man, gavel. Oh, yeah, yeah, held over for a grand jury. Court adjourned. Fanboying aside, Strother and Murphy were brought on in the show's fifth season as new writers, and they clearly did a good job of it because one year later in 1988, series creator Reinhold Ouija left the show as executive producer and head writer, and left the duo in charge which they were right up until 1990, when the happiest production company on Earth came a-calling. Or to be more specific, the so-called adult division of Disney, the late and lamented Touchstone Pictures, whose television division was riding pretty high in the 80s and 90s, thanks in no small part to shows like The Golden Girls, Empty Nest, and Blossom providing more than enough clout to see if the TV division could find success elsewhere. So much so that, in 1990, Touchstone hired Strother and Murphy to come up with what they hoped would be their next signature show, one that they would create completely on their own. And given the show that they just came from, Strother and Murphy decided to stay in the pool of law enforcement comedy. Only instead of a courtroom with an unconventional judge, how about a police station with an unconventional chief? No, not a big city police station like Barney Miller, but... Maybe something a little smaller and a lot less gritty. He rode a blazing saddle. He wore a shining star. Okay, close enough, but let's keep it in present day and without the racial undertones. To this point, Strother and Murphy worked on a TV show where the main character was an offbeat judge who, despite his quirks and shortcomings, still did his job by the book while being outside the box. So, naturally, they hoped that lightning would strike twice with a similar yet different story. The tale of a former movie star who gets elected sheriff of a small town in California. And while I strongly resist the urge to make any modern-day comparisons involving former movie and TV personalities seeking higher office, let's dispel most of that by saying that, given the year that this was made, I'm guessing this might have been a response to Clint Eastwood being elected mayor of Carmel, California, or Sonny Bono getting elected to mayor of Palm Springs in the 80s and then eventually a seat in Congress in the 90s, or even Fred Gopher Grandy from The Love Boat getting a seat in Iowa in the 1980s. And, of course, let's also not forget about this guy. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The point being that by the time this pilot was made in 1991, it wasn't exactly unprecedented for famous people with minimal political experience to run for public office. So, naturally, it was ripe for parody. Now all they needed was somebody unlikely to become an unlikely town sheriff. Enter The Voice. If ever I would leave you, it wouldn't be in summer. 
If you're of a certain age, you might not know who this singer is. But for the rest of us, the late, great Robert Goulet doesn't need that much of an introduction. But that's what they have cliff notes for. After spending some of his formative years in Canadian theater, Goulet's big break came in 1960 when he was tapped to play Sir Lancelot in the original Broadway production of Camelot. It was that performance that helped open the doors to bigger and better things. In spite of the long-running urban legend that whenever Elvis Presley saw Goulet on a TV screen, he would briefly comment how bad the show was before promptly firing a bullet at his TV. Uh, this show ain't no good. But before all of that could take place, Touchstone, Strother, Murphy, and their fellow Night Court co-producer Tim Steele selected Goulet for the main role of former actor Brent McCord, a leading man who rode high in his day, only to suffer a career slump in his later years. Happens to the best of us. And it's because of his established but slowed-down career of playing law enforcement roles that this actor is elected the sheriff of a small California town. In other words, he becomes a sheriff who used to... Act. Actor. Sheriff. Acting sheriff. Wow! Nice segue. <laughs> you know! The show was ready to go. Now all that was needed was a network to air it on at just the right time and place. After shopping it around, the one that took the bait was CBS, who wanted this show to be an extension of their Wednesday night comedy lineup. But if you remember the tale of the burnt-off sitcom pilot, Where's Rodney? Episode 16. Then let me summarize how pilot season works. Through a number of development deals, various TV production companies get to work on the making of several dozen TV shows in the hopes that the networks they pitch them to will pick them up for a series run later that year. This process runs for about several months and is known colloquially as pilot season. It's during this pilot season that potential candidates for the next fall schedules are weeded out through a lengthy process of writing, rewriting, filming, sometimes refilming, audience testing, and ultimately executive approval, or green light. Once the pilot has been greenlit by the TV network, it is then approved for its first season on the air. While many TV networks go through dozens of TV pilots in a development year, only a handful of them make the final cut of the network's schedule, while the rest of the unsold pilots become either lost to time, leak out their pilots on a video sharing service, is casually mentioned in somebody's compilation book about unsold TV shows, hi again, Lee Goldberg, or, if you're really desperate, you actually air the failed pilot during a time of year when nobody really watches that much TV in the first place and call it a special, simply because you need to patch a hole in the schedule. Which, more or less, turns out to be this show's fate. But before we bury the lead, let's enjoy this pilot getting buried in the summer burn-off graveyard for reasons undetermined after the break. 8.30, and America's best-loved singer invites you to share a home-style holiday. When it's Bob Goulet's old-fashioned Cajun Christmas. Christmas Eve on IBC. You'll love it. Oh my gosh. Does that suck? And now, 
Mr. Robert Goulet reads from The Writings of Bart, the collected after-school blackboard writings of young Bart Simpson. Mr. Goulet. I will not trade pants with others. I will not do that thing with my tongue. I will not Xerox my butt. A burp is not an answer. I will not pledge allegiance to Bart. I will not eat things for money. I will not bring sheep to class. I will not instigate revolution. My name is not Dr. Death. To experience all of Bart's blackboard writings, watch every classic episode of The Simpsons. I will not call the principal Spudhead. The Simpsons, now five times a week. This week on Telehell's premium content of the damned. Telmac presents Alfonso Ribeiro. Hi. You know, I wasn't born a dancer. I learned to do it with a lot of help. And with my help, you can learn too. Moves like the moonwalk. Or the King Tut. It's all right here in the Breaking and Popping book. Almost a hundred pages that simply and clearly take you through the moves. The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast for just a few bucks a month. You can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. And now... Back to this week's torture. August 17th, 1991. Reese Witherspoon would make her motion picture debut in The Man in the Moon. Future Elvis cosplayer Austin Butler would be born, meaning he would eventually grow up to play the guy who allegedly shot his TV out whenever the star of this show appears on screen. Ah, uh, this show ain't no good. And at 10.30... 9.30 Central. We start things off with a cold opening showing the regular day-to-day goings-on at a small-town police station, where an officer takes on a seemingly night court-esque situation. Now, uh, Amos, we had another complaint from a neighbor. I-, I don't care if it scares the crows away. You can't stand out in your cornfield naked. <laughs> and I know this seems a little trigger-happy to do right off the bat, but in the show's first minute... It's all but impossible to think of this show as anything else but night court set in a small-town police station. Dare I say... Dare, dare. Strother and Murphy wanted to find themselves in familiar territory while writing this, but a lot of these characters seem to be variations and alterations on existing night court characters, give or take a couple of cosmetic changes and wire crossings, and they're practically the same as their New York City counterparts. For example... The town deputy is easygoing, like Harry Anderson's Harry Stone, but also likes to hit on his co-workers, like John Larroquette's Dan Fielding. Oh, don't forget, I need you to testify for me on Tuesday morning. All right. Say, Donna, you're looking really good today. Is that a new outfit? Not now. (laughs) Her lips said no, but her back said maybe. The female district attorney you just heard? Well... 
She's a DA like Fielding and not a defense lawyer like Marky Post's Christine Sullivan, though at first glance she also seems to have inherited a bit of Marsha Warfield's Roz Russell and her no-nonsense ways. We'll get to the other characters in a moment, but first, we need to meet the reason why we're here in the first place. So, is he here? Uh, not yet. Who is who here? Brent McCord, the new sheriff. (laughs) The Brent McCord? I must have seen every movie he's made at least five times. Yeah, my favorite one is when he walks into the bad guy's hideout with the bazooka and he says, I'm going to hell. Anyone need a lift? (laughs) How ironic. That's the same pickup line I heard when I got electrocuted. Afterwards, a quick line from the sheriff's secretary, who also inherits a little bit of Roz, but also a dash of Charles Robinson's Mac in terms of shooting from the hip. I can't believe that has-been actor beat you out for sheriff. Hey, the people have spoken. I guess my eight years' experience and three commendations paled in comparison to guest starring on The Love Boat. His slogan was, he's honest, he's fair, that's all his own hair. Episode 33. As for the jail guard on this show, well... She lacks the height of the late Richard Mall's Bull Shannon or the chain-smoking sass of Selma Diamond and Florence Halep's self-named characters, but you can tell she's trying to be an amalgam of all three when introducing our star. Well, Judith, sounds like we're a fan of the sheriff's movies. Well, they're good, but he's great. He's got a square jaw, steely blue eyes. Broad shoulders and less body fat than a king cobra. Get the word out. There's a new law in town. What the hell are you doing? You're going to kill someone. If I wanted to. If that was an attempt to give Goulet some street cred, he'd probably have to wait about ten years for somebody else to do it for him. Papa... I like it when you call me Big Papa. (laughs) Throw your hands in the air if you think you're a player, Papa. As we look at our tongue-in-cheek title sequence, a montage of all the career highs and eventual lows our star would face. I do gotta give them credit for using archival footage of Goulet's previous works to illustrate the point. But since this is a TV pilot, the titles also do something that one really should not do in the potential first episode of a TV show. Show clips from the episode of television you're about to see. Regardless of whatever the plot of the episode will be, seeing things ahead of time is practically an invitation to viewers to change the channel because... They're essentially already getting the gist of it with this move. For those who choose to stick around after the credits give away the ball game, Act 1 begins with our new sheriff getting right to work. What do we have here? They are perpetrators, sir. I just booked them on a 499B. So, dropping trow in front of little old ladies. You perverts make me sick. Actually, sheriff, they stole a car. With their pants up. <laughs> Think about this. You break the law one more time, and I'll be on you like a buzzard on a meatloaf. And before you ask if Strother and Murphy got an assist from a copy of Mad Libs for that quote-unquote joke, 
Just a fair warning that it's going to be a continuous downward slide from here. There it is, Mike. Can you hear it? Hear what? The terrible swift sword of justice. It's singing a new song as it rises in the east, and the name on its lips is Brent McCord. Let's have somebody who played a cop on TV and in the movies give you a much better name. I'm sure that we can handle this situation maturely, just like the responsible adults that we are. Isn't that right, Mr. Poopy Pants? That does it! Frank! And so, Mr. Poopy Pants embarks on his first week on the job. And already, there's skepticism. Look at this memo on new firearms procedures I've been working on it the last couple of days. Halt or I'll shoot again. <laughs> Well, to be honest, Sheriff, we try not to rely on indiscriminate gunfire as our first response. We try to open a dialogue, talk to people. Talk, talk, talk. What is this, the Sheriff's Department or the Larry King Show? This is followed immediately by our acting sheriff trying to maintain control in a situation involving a hometown piece of livestock. You heard me. Send back up. This pig has got me cornered. What the hell? Mrs. Carmichael was attacked by her neighbor's pig. I sent Fred to answer the call. Helen, do you read me? This pig is insane. Fred, this is McCord. Now I'm ordering you to pull yourself together and interdict that pig. You want me to do what to the pig? <laughs> That's all, folks. Afterwards, we get to the main story for this program. There's a bank robber on the loose in town, and he looks to be caught. Will our new sheriff stick to the rule of law, or will he do something wacky and unconventional that no other sheriff would ever do? I'm stalling for time because that's pretty much what he does anyway. Please laugh. Sir, this is the bank robbery suspect from Marin County. Okay, furball. <laughs> You tell me where you have that money or you'll be doing sit-ups with the devil. I think our boss tried that once as an early morning exercise show in the 80s. Only lasted one episode because every time he asked the participants to do squat thrusts, blood and fire would shoot out of a random orifice. It's exactly as comfortable as it sounds, and it's even worse if you have diverticulitis. But I digress. What follows next is one of the pitfalls... I assume, of being a famous person. It being that if you butter them up just enough, not only will their ego be properly stroked, but you can also get away with committing a felony. You wouldn't happen to have a photo that you could autograph for me, would you? Well, I might have one somewhere in my office. Well, looks like we're in luck. <laughs> Who should I make this up? Gee, it's almost as though the show is trying to tell us that famous people getting elected to public office doesn't always work the way they would hope it would. How about that? Act two starts with us getting to know our, pardon me, assistant DA a little better, as well as a slight snafu that the sheriff did. Who are you? Uh, sheriff, this is Donna Singer. She's our assistant DA. I'm sorry, you were ranting about something? I was discussing the drug bust the sheriff personally conducted yesterday. 
What's the problem? We forget to serve cappuccino during strip search? No, you only forgot to read the suspects their rights. As required by the Supreme Court. Oh, that dog and pony show. Inevitably, the sheriff faces the consequences of his actions when it comes to letting the robbery suspect go free. Due to a, a supervisional deficiency, I, uh... You lost him, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay, he couldn't have gotten too far. We can still find him. Oh, we don't have too long. Marin said they'd have a man up here within a couple of hours. Oh, this is just great. Somebody ought to put a tent over you and charge admission. So the chase is on to find the robbery suspect again. Hilarity, predictably, ensues. Yes, Helen? Sheriff, the deputy from Marin County's here with a couple reporters. <laughs> Thank you, Helen. Thank you. Tell him I'll be, uh, I'll be right with them. Mike? What am I going to do? <laughs> I can think of a few things. I mean, you could fess up that you blew it, admit that this was a bad career decision, quit with what little dignity you have left, become a panelist on the Hollywood Squares. You know, Mike, all my life I've been play acting, pretending to be the, the hero. That's one of the reasons why I ran for sheriff. So for once in my life, I could be a real hero. Wait a minute. There's still something we can try, but I'll need you to stall those people until I give you the word. Great idea. Stolen. How? <laughs> Naturally, since this is a pilot, there needs to be a way for everybody to stick around. So, of course, Goulet is going to try and find a way to stay on board while the actual competent people do the real work behind the scenes. That seems to be the plan, except for one problem. Even though Goulet can act his way out of a paper bag with the right script in front of him, his improv skills leave little to the imagination. Fortunately for the fact that Goulet's office has a lot of memorabilia on his walls, his deputy comes up with a plan. I got it. Get Al Capone. That film where you played the G-Man? Special Agent Vic Volk. <laughs> if Vic Volk could take on the mob... Well, then those reporters will be a piece of cake. And that's what he does. Give the reporters a little flash and pizzazz while the real officers do what's expected of them. Hilarity ensues once again. Sheriff, I'm Ann Wong Fowler from the Daily Journal. We're here to get the inside story of Brent McCord and his first big arrest. Yeah, where's the robber? I'd like to get the two of you together. You're not the only one. Fifteen minutes later. Well, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's still being processed. We had a huge, a huge backlog today. <laughs> so how long are we talking? Five, ten minutes? Ah, uh, well, normally, yes. But you see, uh, we're uh, de-processing him vis-a-vis -vis the requirements of uh, Project ECRU. One long, angry line later. It's an acronym. <laughs> For what? Ah, sorry, official police business. <laughs> but I feel I can trust you, so I'll give you the first word. Uh, environmental. 
24 hours later. No, I can't help you any more than that, except the second word begins with a C. Begins with a C. <laughs> Community. No! Oh, too bad. Sweet Satan, I never wanted a bad sitcom pilot to end quicker in my life or death. Even with three minutes left on the clock, you wonder what the here is taking quantum physicists so long to develop time travel already. Sheriff, are you trying? The kind of courage shown by our forefathers at Valley Forge, by our four brothers at Iwo Jima, the kind of courage it takes to look down the barrels of those us and say, all right, Capone, this is Jolie, and you ain't seen nothing yet because I'm waiting on the levee. that I'm sure it was written. For reasons undetermined. Hey, everybody. I believe some of you have met Harper. Mike, how'd you find him? Well, I went back to the hotel, hid out for a while, and voila, he came back for the money. Just like the sheriff predicted. I did? I did. <laughs> so, all's well that ends well. The sheriff gets his man with a boatload of help from those who are far more competent, and a couple loose ends are tied up that we probably forgot needed to be tied up in the first place. Come on, Donna. Look, it was a tense moment. I lost my head. So I hope you didn't take that shot up the wrong way. Actually, I have to admit, I was very impressed by the way you pulled the sheriff's chestnuts out of the fire. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah, I'm... In time of crisis, you were forceful and clever, compassionate. A lot of women find those qualities very attractive. Really? Do you? Absolutely. In fact, I'd say that's what really attracts me to Steve. Tune in never to find out who Steve is, as we get the closing gag from Mr. Poopy Pants. Mike. Oh, Sheriff, you wanted something? Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you for what you did for me today. No, 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 I mean it. I mean, you stood by me in a difficult time, even though I slaughtered you in the elections. <laughs> just want you to know that I, I appreciate it, and I won't forget it, partner. No, it, it was nothing. What was nothing? Uh, this show ain't no good. Suffice to say, the world was not ready for acting sheriff. And neither were TV viewers. Reportedly, just a hair under 5 million viewers saw the show when it aired, which may be monumental numbers in the 21st century, but back then, it led to a ranking of number 83 out of 90 TV shows that aired that week. A performance so dismal that CBS would ultimately pass on the show and instead choose to greenlight a season of long-running crime staple Jake and the Fat Man instead. And were this just another typical failed sitcom pilot, that's all that really needs to be said about this. Except... For this one side story that we neglected to mention until this very moment. Partly because we would never even consider reviewing something so mundane unless there was an especially interesting piece of trivia attached to it. And folks... Smoke them if you got them, because you're going to have to sit down for this one. See if anything I'm about to tell you next makes any goddamn sense to you whatsoever. 
You see, Acting Sheriff was one of a number of Disney and Touchstone TV properties for the 1991 fiscal year that were lumped into something called a Zebra's Plan. It's an acronym. Which is acronym for Zero Coupon Adjusted Rate Based Securities. In short, they're bonds in which the face value is repaid at the time of maturity. Unlike regular bonds, it does not make periodic interest payments or have so-called coupon. Hence the term zero coupon bond. When the bond reaches maturity, its investor receives its par or face value. Examples of zero coupon bonds include treasury bills, savings bonds, long-term zero coupon bonds, etc. Zero coupon bonds may be long or short-term investments. Long-term zero coupon maturity dates typically start from 10 to 15 years. The bonds can be held until maturity or sold on secondary bond markets. Short-term zero coupon bonds generally have maturities of less than one year and are called bills. The U.S. Treasury bill market is the most active and liquid debt market in the world. So you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with anything? Well, the purpose of this Zebra plan was essentially to offer Disney shareholders some bonus money solely on the condition that the TV shows that were tied into this program were successful. If they were, they'd make money. If they didn't, they didn't. Which, even for Disney to do, was a pretty ballsy plan to make the company more money. Especially when they used shows like Acting Sheriff, Lenny, uh, Singer and Sons, The Finelli Boys, Stat? Ever hear of any of these shows? Well, on the plus side, Disney would eventually make its fortune in the movies and then ultimately have over-encompassing power over every aspect of day-to-day existence, as well as a branch office down here on the Gluttony Four. But they certainly wouldn't get to where they are now with Robert Goulet. So, where does acting sheriff ride off into the sunset of Telehell? Let us trot our way into the nine circles. For reasons undetermined. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. Before we strap the saddle onto the zebra, let's go over the show proper first. It was a pilot that, although it did air on TV, ultimately led nowhere, putting it in limbo. And as much as the team of Strother and Murphy found their success through their years of show running and writing for Night Court, a lot of this show felt like it was trying to be its own thing even though there were a lot of pre-existing comparisons to make to the other, more successful show. Everything from quirky criminals to rearranging character personalities in other people. To make a somewhat questionable comparison, if you're old enough to remember the board game Popomatic Trouble, then you might be old enough to remember a very similar yet different board game called Popomatic Headache. The game mechanics between both games are similar, but the rules for each game are slightly different. I pretty much felt this way watching this pilot. Like, you felt deep down that they wanted to do something different. But because of how successful the other show they were working on was, they kind of fell into the trap of hoping lightning would strike twice and nobody would notice. Especially Reinhold Ouija, who I'm kind of surprised never called them out on it. Especially when Night Court was still on the air as this was airing. So, in that regard, I gotta give this show a one-two punch of fraud and heresy for sticking a little too much to the tried and true, as well as additional gluttony for attempting to put on what was, essentially, a second version of Night Court in the first place. 
To say nothing of how cartoonishly trigger-happy Goulet's sheriff was throughout the whole show, resulting in a graze of cartoonish violence. And then you get to the ridiculous Zebra's plan Disney and Touchstone concocted in the hopes that their hopes for the fall of 1991, including this show, would make the company a little extra money. Even though by that point in time, their animation studio was well on their way to becoming a motion picture printing press for the next few decades. Corporations gotta corporate, I guess, and Disney's plan to accentuate their greed in 91 blew up in their faces. Which, given how things work in the business world, is probably one of the more narrow-minded things a company could have done to make money. If they knew this show and all the other shows that they had in this Zebra's plan was going to fail, just write it off as a business loss and make the money back on the tax refund. You know, like most tax cheats do. Acting Sheriff earns six out of nine circles of telehell. But, as is the case with busted TV pilots, no detrimental harm was made to anybody's career because of it. The cast of the show, as unknown as they were when they were cast, went on to durable careers as character performers. Larry Strother and Gary Murphy would continue to put their creative talents behind many more hit shows. Strother would continue to write and produce for various sitcoms in the 90s and 2000s, and would later go on to create the classic game show parody, Most Extreme Elimination Challenge. While Murphy would continue to write and also be consulting and co-executive producer for a number of decently running sitcoms, like Caroline in the City, The Exes, Sydney to the Max, and Murphy was also highly instrumental as a writer and executive producer and co-developer for Malcolm in the Middle in the year 2000. And then, there's Robert Goulet. Running merrily through the snow. In spite of what the king of rock and roll would think of him, Goulet's career would only continue to flourish for the next few decades up to his passing in 2007. By that point in time, and despite all the awards he's won and the accomplishments that he's made, there were really only three other things that kept Goulet in the spotlight during the 21st century. His appearances on Disney's Recess as Mikey's singing voice. Watch the jingle jangle start to shine. Reflections of the music that is mine When you toss a coin, you'll hear it sing Now listen while I play My green tambourine The aforementioned Will Ferrell impersonation of him on SNL Hold on, looky here, it's a bighorn Well, that's why I come up here Look at you you're hungry. <laughs> you don't even blink, do you? And perhaps his longest-lasting piece of work, aside from anything he would ever do on the Broadway stage, the theme song to this long-running late-night staple. That theme song has been Jimmy Kimmel's for the past 20 years and counting. And for as brief as Goulet actually appears in the song, you can still hear him every night long after he's left this mortal world. You honestly can't ask for better staying power than that. Anyway, check out the CD. You'll just love it. Or my name isn't 
Next time on Telehell, in the words of the late, great Norm MacDonald, Happy birthday, Jesus! Hope you like crap! Could you hurry, sir? Daddy says there's not much time. She's been sick for quite a while, and I know these shoes will make her smile, and I want her to look beautiful if Mama meets Jesus tonight. Until then... If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976. And all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. You know that thing that people do in order to communicate with each other without actually having to look each other face to face? You know, social media? Well, we do that. Look for us on X, Facebook, and now Blue Sky. All three of them at Telehell Podcast. And don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and pretty much tell us what you think of our show everywhere that you can stream us. And also on our complaint line, telehellpodcast at gmail.com.